Hi, I'm Cheryl, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church, and the question for today is this. How do we have conversations about our faith when religion and politics are in the no conversation zone, right? And which has always been true. You're not supposed to talk about religion, politics, or I think money, and then add to it now that we're in a time where people are canceling family gatherings because you don't even want to, you don't want to be with Uncle Stan who's going to go on and on about his political views or his position on masks or vaccines or the black helicopters in Austin, Texas, Google that. Uh, you know, we, we've, become, we've become a talk at culture rather than a dialogue with culture. We don't have to listen anymore. We don't have to pause. We don't have to ask questions or inquire deeper. Because we've been conditioned to communicate um, in a style that I think feels a little bit like somewhere between Morse code and CB radios, right? Morse code. It's, it's that little tapping. It's that, that sending a message. Of course, we call it text messaging now or messaging. But, you know, with Morse code, and I did this when I was a little kid. I built a little Morse code thing. And you send out your message and you await for a response with no guarantee that they have rightly deciphered your code or understood your intent or understood your demeanor. It's like a CB radio also aging myself here, uh, sitting in friends' parents' cars talking on the CB radio where again, you talk at, now back then you got to say 10-4 at the end, right? And then you had all these codes, which I guess we kind of have those codes now, like LOL, OMG, but you talked at, and then you said 10-4, and then hopefully someone out there in the Truckerville would talk at you, and if they didn't respond, you just kind of went on. Now, of course, we have a term for that now. If, if somebody doesn't respond to your talking at them, your messaging to them, we call that ghosting, right? They don't have to tell you why they didn't respond. They don't have to explain what was going on. Social media, I don't even probably have to talk about this one, but again, we can post our opinion at you, and then you get to comment back at me with your opinion, or I could turn off the comments and I could just talk at you with all of my opinions. So here's a theory I'm working on. Have no data for it. I've done no research <laughs> to back it up. But I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if this texting, messaging mode of communication has eroded our ability for empathetic dialogue. Has it eroded our ability for empathetic dialogue? Because you see, conversations about faith cannot be a talking at. They have to be a talking with. They have to be a dialogue. They have to be a conversation. And that's the kind of people that we want to be. That's the environment we want to create at Menlo Church. Rachel Held Evans, the author, said this, and I think I've quoted this before, but I'm going to quote it again because it's so important for us. 
This is who we want to be, Menlo Church. She said this about her generation and about religious conversations. She said, we, millennials, we don't want to choose between science and religion or between our intellectual integrity and our faith. Instead, we long for our churches to be safe places. We long for our churches to be safe places to doubt, to ask questions, and to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. We want to talk about the tough stuff, about biblical interpretation, about religious pluralism, about sexuality, racial reconciliation, and social justice, but without predetermined conclusions or simplistic Answer, answers. And I, I don't think she's saying that we wouldn't have opinion, we wouldn't land on what we believe to be our truth, but what I hear is a cry for dialogue, empathetic dialogue, openness. We're in a series about being unlikely witnesses of God, right here right where we are, in our culture, in our time, in this place. And we said on week one that witness is actually, you know, it's a judicial word or it's a biblical word. And in the scripture, the concept of witness was to see something amazing or important and then to say something about it. That's to bear witness. And we looked back and we saw that God from the very beginning all the way back to Genesis He's always wanted a, pe a group of people who would witness of him, who would see Jesus and say something about him. Now, maybe you've heard it said, share your faith and if necessary, use words. Well, the Bible tells us that words are necessary that it requires conversation and dialogue and communication. But what does that look like in our current time, in our current culture of contention, of ghosting and talking at rather than talking with? That's what I wanna talk about today. I want us to consider what is the method of the unlikely witness? What does it look like for us to witness of Jesus and to have conversations about faith. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way with us. As we consider a topic that can create angst and sometimes fear even maybe some doubts and questioning of, should we even be doing this? Father, we don't want to get out ahead of you, and we don't want to lag behind you. But we do want to walk in step with your Holy Spirit. We do want to live as followers of Jesus in such a way that your beauty, your importance, your significance would be on our lips. 
would you help us? Would you be with us now? In the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus, amen. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And 1 Peter is a book that's written by an unlikely witness. It was written by Peter. He had witnessed uh, in the physical, he had witnessed the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But this unlikely witness, Peter, I'm so thankful for this, he stumbled along the way, which encourages me that I can stumble a little bit along the way. There were moments when Peter was all in with Jesus uh, to the point of even telling Jesus how to do his ministry or how to not do it. And then there was a point when Peter faced with some persecution, faced with uh, some harassment, completely denied even knowing Jesus. And in all of that, he had a deeper encounter with Jesus. And so this Peter is writing, he's writing this book, and, and most of the New Testament letters were not written to a person, they were written to churches, and not just one church, but typically they were meant to be circulated, they would be um, sent out to multiple churches, and so this letter, First Peter, was sent to a group of churches that were in what we would now know as modern-day Turkey, um, and it was a letter that was written to churches filled with mostly non-Jewish Christians. People who had come to faith in Jesus, not necessarily through the route of Judaism, which many had come, but this group had come from outside of that. And they were now living in the way of Jesus in this area that was very hostile to them. And they were being harassed and they were being persecuted by their Greek and Roman neighbors because of their faith in this Jesus of Nazareth who was now uh, followed by them as their God and their Messiah. So Peter wrote to them <clears throat> to encourage them in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of this harassment, and to remind them to keep living uniquely in the way of Jesus. And he says this, he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Keep living in the way of Jesus. Don't be a jerk, right? Keep living in the way of love. But be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have in Christ, why you are revering him as Lord. And so from this passage, I want to just parse out a few things. First, I want to talk about two foundations for our witness. What do we stand on? What, what's our foundation? And then 
I want to talk about two demeanors for effectively bearing witness, okay? So first, the two foundations for our witness. Peter says very clearly, our two foundations are our hope and our reason for that hope. Hope and reason. Verse 15 again, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the logic for the hope that you have. And of course, their hope and our hope is Jesus. Peter actually said in chapter 1 of this letter, he says in chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our God. He's the one we worship. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Hear this. Their hope was Jesus, and the reason they could hold on to this hope was his resurrection. The logic, the reason they could hold on to this hope was Jesus's resurrection. Because why was there hope in Jesus and not some other God? Remember, they're living in a very, very polytheistic realm. They're living in an area where everyone's got gods and there's all kinds of gods around them. Why Jesus? Why were they so convinced of the message of Jesus that they were willing to risk, literally risk their life for it? And their answer, and Peter's answer, was the resurrection, which he, Peter, and over 500 others were eyewitnesses to. Their reason was the resurrection. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, said this. He says, the bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't a take-it-or-leave-it thing. The bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't a take-it-or-leave-it thing, as though some Christians are welcome to believe in it and others are welcome to not believe in it. He says, take away the resurrection, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away, and Sigmund Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is a wish-fulfillment religion. Take away the resurrection, and Nietzsche was probably right to say Christianity was a religion for wimps. But, N.T. Wright says, put the resurrection back, and you have a faith that can take on the postmodern world and its prophets with the resurrection news that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And if you want to go deeper into the resurrection and evidence for it, I would submit to you N.T. Wright is your friend. Uh, he's an amazing scholar, and I would point you to him. But basically, N.T. Wright's just saying what the Apostle Paul said. Paul, when he wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians, he said this in, verse, in chapter 15. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if he's not been raised, then we're a false witness. Everything stands and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul goes on and he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hear that again. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you've chosen Christianity just for this life, maybe you've said, you know, I mean, if I'm going to pick a religion, it's a nice one. It's grounded on love. I like Jesus. He seemed to be a good teacher. But there's no grounded faith in the resurrection if it's just for this life, if it's just the religion you chose because, well, I'm American and I guess I'm Christian. I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. It's a cultural thing. Um, yeah, I like my Christian community. Um, I like my Christian hymns or choruses or I like, no, if that's all your Christianity is grounded upon, if it's just for this life, if it's just a cultural thing, if it's just a nice thing, Paul says, we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied. The two foundations for our witness are hope and reason. Jesus and his resurrection. And then how do we share that message? How do we bear witness to the goodness of Jesus and the power of his resurrection to change us and make everything new and everything different, including us? Well, that's the two demeanors. The two demeanors for effectively bearing witness, gentleness and respect. Again, back to 1 Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope to the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, something really interesting is happening here that Paul is doing in his language that's hard to pick up on in the English translation. Because what it appears, if you dive into the language and the words that Peter uses for um, this passage, is that he seems to be saying that we need to have a demeanor of gentleness towards those who are asking for a reason for our hope. We're to have a demeanor of gentleness to others and we're to have a demeanor of respect or trust in God as we share that hope. We're to have a demeanor of gentleness to others and this is what this looks like. The word there is actually um, most often translated meekness. And it's a, 
It's a virtue that's mentioned throughout the New Testament. It's a supreme virtue in the Christian life. And here's what meekness is. It doesn't mean you're wussy or a wimp. It just means that you have power, but you don't assert it. Meekness is an unwillingness to establish one's own justice, to defend oneself, or to attack an opponent, but instead a committing of one's cause to God. A gentle response does not defend or attack. Gentleness, hear this, church. Gentleness knows it does not win if it wounds. And so often there's been this, I got to have this argument for Christianity. I got to have this, this defense of Jesus and I'm going to get him. But gentleness does not, or gentleness knows it does not win if it wounds. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit with all of these aspects. So gentleness is always accompanied by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. And all of this creates an environment for an empathetic dialogue. All of this creates an environment in which our words can be heard. All of this creates an environment of relationship. So gentleness towards others and respect or trust toward God. And I think this is what Peter's trying to convey. I think he's trying to say that you can be gentle towards others because of your trust in God. If you step into these conversations, these dialogues, with a sense that God goes with you, that God goes before you, that ultimately all salvation is the work of God, then it's not all up to you. I don't have to have all the right answers to have a conversation about my hope in Christ. I don't have to be aggressive. I don't have to be assertive. I can be gentle because I do this with God. We're going to talk more about that actually next week. And of course, all of this is contingent upon one last thing. Relationship. Peter assumed a few things about his readers. He assumed that they had relationships with people who didn't believe like they believe. He assumed that they lived their lives in such a way that it would incite curiosity for people to ask why. Why do you live that way? So what does this mean for us? First, number one, get proximate. It's hard to be a witness to what you've seen in Jesus if you're not near people, if you don't have relationships with people. And hear me, this is not about being an extrovert or an introvert. So many people will say to me, well, I'm just an introvert. Well, you guys, newsflash. I'm kind of more of an introvert. I live by myself and I'm totally fine with it, right? I'm more of an introvert. 
This doesn't mean that you have to be a raging extrovert. It means that you have to see people and want to be in relationship with them. And for some of you, that might be a lot of people. And for some, it's two or three. But get proximate. Start with your cafeteria. <laughs> Sit at a different table in the cafeteria, whether it's at your middle school or at Google, right? Invite a coworker to lunch. I had a friend who, for years, he just made it part of his joining in the way of Jesus was he just made a commitment financially in his budget and in his time that he would seek to have a meal, breakfast or lunch, with at least one coworker a week. Have a neighbor over for dinner and then do this. Just plow them over with all the things about Jesus. No, do this. Have lunch with a coworker and be curious about them. Find out about their life. Where are they from? Do they have kids? What are their names? And listen with no judgment, just wanting to know them, wanting to know their story, and then do that again. We want to get good at this, having empathetic dialogue with people, having conversation with people. That's why we're going to do these book clubs um, this summer. So I hope you sign up for one of them uh, just to discover what are the nine arts of spiritual conversation. How do you do this in a normal way? And let me say this too. When I say, hey, have lunch with a coworker, sit next to somebody different at your middle school cafeteria, um, I don't mean this in a transactional way. This isn't the way of Jesus. It's not, I'm going to be friends with you, I'm going to have lunch with you, and then hopefully I'm going to get to share Jesus with you, and then I'm going to get Jesus points at my church. Well, one, we don't give those points out here, so find a different church if you're looking for that. Um, no, this isn't a transaction like I want to love this person so I can get them to know Jesus. And this is why it's so important, and again, we're going to talk about it next week, but we have to partner with, with God or it becomes all about us. It becomes about manipulation. It doesn't, it doesn't live in the stream of the way of Jesus, who is love. No matter what, in, unconditionally, I just want to be friends. I want to know you. I want to care about you. So get proximate. Two, pray and partner with God, which again, we're going to talk more about next week. Number three, be genuinely kind. Be genuinely kind because of the hope that you have in Christ. Originally, I made this point just don't be a jerk, but that seems kind of negative. Um, <laughs> but don't be a jerk. Be genuinely kind because of the hope that you have in Christ. I remember years ago, I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller. He's a was a pastor in New York City and he shared this story and it just kind of kind of got me <laughs> because it describes what does it look like to be genuinely kind because of the hope that we have in Christ so he told the story of a woman who had come to his church and he met her and uh, she was not a Christian. She wasn't a believer in Jesus, but she was coming to his church and he saw her a number of times. They had conversation. And so 
finally, he kind of asked her, like, how did you end up here? How'd you end up at this church? And she says to him, well, that's a story, right? <laughs> and this was her story. She said that she'd worked for one of, she worked for one of the major television networks, and she had gotten pretty good at her job, and so she had gotten promoted. And not too long after she got that job, she made a really, really stupid mistake at work. Been there. I've been there. You've been there, maybe. And it was really bad. And she assumed and thought that she was going to lose her job. But instead, her boss went to his boss and said, you know what, I need to bear the blame for this because I didn't really train her well. And that was probably true, but he took a hit for that. And then he went back and he said to her, hey, you haven't lost your job, don't worry about it, we'll do better next time. We'll figure out how to keep this from happening again. And she looked at him and she said, I just can't believe you did that for me. And he said, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. She said, no, no, no. I really, I don't understand why you did that for me. And she said, um, I've been in this business and here's what I know. My superiors are constantly taking credit for what I do. They never take the blame for what I do. Never. In this business, you take credit for what the people beneath you do. You try to push those people away and you take credit so you can go up the ladder and you can kind of trample on them on the way up. It's not illegal, but it's cruel. It's ruthless. So I've had superiors uh, who always take credit for what I've done, but I've never seen one who took blame for what I've done. Why did you do that? And she kind of pushed him. And according to her story, he said, okay, I'll tell you. He said, I'm a Christian. And I base my life on what Jesus Christ has done for me. And he took the blame for me. That's why I'm saved. I did something wrong, and Jesus, instead of writing me off, bore the blame. And because of that, I try to apply that to my life, which means that I try to bear more pain than I inflict in all of my work dealings. I was so struck by that. I work for a church. I'm a pastor. I want to be that person. And I don't know that I always have been. That I tried bear more pain than I inflict in all of my work dealings. And then she said, she looked at him and she said, where do you go to church? This is our opportunity to live and walk in the way of Jesus so that we might bear witness to him in our life and with our words, being gentle and living in trust of God. I think it's 
what Peter, why Peter says this in the, the very beginning of this letter. He's the one, remember, who's de who had denied even knowing Jesus, and Jesus kept coming after him. Jesus still restored him. And I think that's why Peter said to this group that he's writing the letter to, he said, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And I think Peter was stunned by that. He had seen Jesus in the flesh. He had seen the resurrection and yet these followers hadn't seen him and yet they still believed in him. Oh church, would we be a place where our hope is in Christ, our reason is his resurrection, and our demeanor is that of gentleness towards others, and trust in the God who makes all good things happen. May it be, Jesus, we just invite you. Do something different in us. Make us more like you. Help our unbelief that we might have greater belief in you. You are our hope. We offer you our lives today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.